0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. My guest for the remaining part of the program is Claudia Franco, who has extensive experience in Latin America covering uh, sovereign markets, helping them finance their, their bonds around the region, uh, also was a former graduate of the Wharton School. so always good to get Wharton grads back in the program. Claudia, welcome to Behind the Markets.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. My pleasure to be here today.
1: Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background um, and sort of very interesting career in in Latin America and 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 sort of emerging market debt from both an investor standpoint and then helping countries finance their debt issuance? Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your career history.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I before going to Wharton, I I had um, the possibility to work at the World Bank, which uh, kind of started, you know, my career path in many ways, because when I went to Wharton, then I was hired by J.P. Morgan to work on fixed income origination, uh, sort of, you know, this is the 90s, from 91 to 2000, where most countries, especially with focus in Latin America and the Caribbean, started developing the yield curves and started exiting, if you remember those days of the Brady Bonds and, you know, repackaging debt and debt exchanges, and then building yield curves, because the countries were not present in the capital markets. And I did that at uh, J.P. Morgan. Then, um, actually, the government of Colombia, I'm Colombian myself, uh, literally you know, invited me to be part of um, the economic team to help the country at a time when it had lost its investment grade. This is um, 2000, 99-2000. And then I worked with the government for three years. We had to figure out how to tap the markets at a time when the markets closed for the country. And then in 2004, I joined the IDB, and I started managing really the development of the financial architecture for the Inter-American Development Bank, really all predicated on the notion that sovereigns need to have easily accessible financial tools to actively manage market risk and implement best market practices. And I think that sort of summarizes in a nutshell what I've done.
1: As you think about what the what the environment was like 20 years ago to where these countries are today, you know how would you say? What are the big picture you know issues when they were issuing bonds before? How, you know what their their deficit debt situations are today. Like what are the, the big picture changes over time?
0: Uh, I, Jeremy, I truly think that there, there's been significant change, and it's amazing. I still remember my days when uh, I took the class with Professor Siegel, right and we all talk about what the kind of discipline that the market instills, right, in, in, in various actors in the market, whoever that is. Um, when I uh, joined J.P. Morgan, you know, countries did not even had not even issued bonds. Right. And you could see in the span of those initial 10 years and say the 90s, how the countries, the debt managers, the debt management offices started becoming so much more. Um, um, you know, knowledgeable of the markets, because as you start tapping the markets and you start taking a minister of finance to issue a, a bond, a debut bond for the first time, you better be ready to answer questions to investors. You better start having a team that is going to support you and accompany you through that process. So, to your question, from what I saw in the 90s where it was really hand-holding and it was a, a, a start for many of the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, in the markets to you push forward, uh, you know, 15, 20 years later, you have debt management offices that are actively managing debt. These are really highly sophisticated, some of these countries that are doing very interesting things in the market and that they had to learn to use, whether it was debt exchanges, you know, debt buybacks, or, or or use, you know, start fixing rates or getting local currency hedging themselves. That started creating big teams, you know, that had to respond to rating agencies. So you have a whole different group of people, really much more sophisticated and much more getting into more interesting things than just issuing a bond. I don't know if this is a long-winded response but it's really the the story
1: here when you think about their ability to and you just talked about some of the currency hedging and think about where they where they issue you know as you think about some of the historicals they often would issue their debt in dollars and that would then create this mismatch in in liabilities and their revenue uh how how is that trend in the local currency market developed for for many of these countries and uh and what you see happening there
0: I think it has happened. It, you know, it also huge development there. You may remember back in the 2000s when Ricardo Hausman was talking about the original sin and, you know, how these countries were all, you know, indebted in dollars. And that was sort of a a trap. I think a lot of efforts have been placed by many countries in the region to develop the local capital markets. Also to be uh, to, to make it I don't know. Somebody tried to ask the question there, maybe I don't know. Um, no, um, countries have um, understood the importance of having um, a more manageable composition of their debt, and to that um, and to that effect, what they have done is not only really work hard to start developing. Uh, pension funds, institutional investors in the local markets start developing the yield curves, the most sophisticated markets, you know, c- the countries in the region have developed yield curves all the way to 30 years. Um, but in addition, and I, I I will add to that, maybe my bias because I spent 17 years at the IGB, but I think the multilaterals also started putting a lot of pressure on the countries to see how we could work, how multilaterals could work with the countries to provide local currency financing. Um and, and to that extent, we started trying to develop products and finding ways of linking, of, of bridging the market gaps between what is a triple A and the benefits of having a triple A to work with the markets to develop this particular niches of markets where you can grab local currency financing opportunities and being able to pass it to the countries uh, with the benefits of what the multilateral brings because it's passing all that triple A Pricing, but the the result of that is by having a demand on local currency bonds or potential of, or, or hedges, you know market counterparties go deeper and deeper in trying to find those opportunities in the local market to give it to the multilaterals and be able the multilaterals to offer it to the country. So so that has been an effort. Um, it has taken time, but I can tell you that at least for, from the point of view of the Inter-American Development Bank, over the last 10 years, we have provided more than $10 billion in local currency financing, and this is purely through hedges in the markets. Um, in, in, in liquid currencies like Colombian pesos, Mexican pesos, that's obvious. Those are more developed markets. But then we, I can tell you that we started going deeper and finding market opportunities in Costa Rica, Colones, in um, Uruguayan pesos, in Jamaican dollars. So you can see that that impetus is there to continue to push more and more financing local currency.
1: For, for people who aren't that familiar with the Inter-American Development Bank, I mean, tell our listeners a little bit about the, the, the role of the bank and, it, and its funding, how it got founded, and, and, and it's really what, what are the, the main activities that they're, they're doing day to day.
0: Yeah, the Inter-American Development Bank, and I hope nobody from the ITB is hearing me, but it's sort of like the World Bank. It's the Development Bank for Latin America and the Caribbean. So what the bank does is provide um, uh, financing, project financing to sovereigns. The sovereigns are the owners of the institution, so it's a cooperative. Um, The IDB has a AAA that, being a cooperative, the owners of the institution can benefit from very low-cost financing, um, project financing for development uh, from the IDB. Um, so the, really the goal is to improve lives in the region and um, do so in a very orderly fashion uh, for development. But in the process, in addition to all the development projects and, and uh, what, you know, what these institutions do to, to help countries move forward in, in, in very difficult areas, you know, education, health, infrastructure. In addition, the multilaterals such as the ITB have done a tremendous amount of work in um, giving countries also additional tools and support so that they can better manage market risks and be more savvy if you want issuers in the markets and be more savvy managers of debt because ultimately the credit agencies are behind them. And when you look, for instance, going back to local currency, Uh, Yeah, the rating agencies are behind saying, well, tell us about the composition of your debt, you know. So how can an an institution like the ITB help countries pursue those goals and align with the markets, right? If you have credit ratings looking into composition of debt, less dollar debt, probably better. How can the ITB help in that? So I don't know if I'm giving sort of a brief overview.
1: Yeah we're, yeah, we're talking with Claudia Franco, who was the head of Treasury Client Solutions at the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, you know, w- when you think about the unique challenges you solved or, or helped solve, was there a, a particular uh, case of, of your experience there that was like the most challenging um, project or, or, or most challenging situation you found from a, a bond perspective that you trying to help the the region manage?
0: Well, yeah, um I don't know, Jeremy. If I I want to go into well, I could either continue to talk a little bit about local currency, or I don't know if, and this puts you into a whole different uh, you know area, which is commodity hedging, because yeah. you know, um, you know, as you look at the countries as, and as debt managers, you need to look about debt sustainability, right? So then you can start thinking about all sorts of other products, not just bonds. You can start thinking about cat bonds. You can start thinking about commodity hedging. And I think that it goes to the core of being a good debt manager um, and surviving, you know, in a very volatile market environment. I like to um, know that you're asking this question. I think it's, I'd like to highlight what what a commodity hedge was like and what this means. And this perhaps gives people an idea of what multilaterals are starting to do, you know, to go deeper and deeper into more debt management in a broader sense. As we know, the lag countries are all commodity dependent, whether they're importers or exporters. And commodity projects are, of course, at the heart of managing the sovereign's balance sheets and the sustainability of their fiscal balances over time. But yet, sovereigns have been very hesitant to use tools, these tools, such as commodity hedges to stabilize their fiscal accounts, which you would think that that's fairly obvious, right? If you're commodity dependent, you should be thinking more actively about this. And except for Mexico, which has, some of you may know, the largest oil hedging program of any sovereign in the world, the rest of the countries in the region have been very hesitant to use the tools for a variety of reasons, you know, lack of consensus among different government stakeholders, Limited access, perhaps relationships with the counterparties, costs, no ability to pay for those services because, frankly, a minister of finance is very worried about paying a premium to do an oil hedge. Um, And, of course, lack of internal capacity. So clearly, this led the IDB, in particular, to identify a, a clear market failure in which the IDB could play a significant role to address it. So. In addition, we kept receiving market feedback from the key banks on you know, Wall Street saying, look, we've tried to work with sovereigns to do this. It's imperative that they use these uh, tools, but they haven't done anything. So the IDB participation, key to all of this, and I want to remind people of the AAA of the multilaterals of the IDB, the World Bank, was very key to be able to unlock the use of this instrument. So we developed the product, we launched it, and I think um, uh, one of the best, uh, really, results was um, the fact that we did a first commodity hedge linked to an IDB bond, uh, IDB loan, uh, very important IDB loan, um, uh, to the Bahamas. This is public information, that's why I can make reference to this and really it was an amazing operation because not only Bahamas did not need to sign an ISDA with the bank because it was all documented under the loan agreements which have all the commodity hedging clauses that would enable Bahamas to do it faster, cheaper because signing an ISDA for any small country or for any country in the world is extremely expensive we did it um in may we did a first hedge in sorry in july and the second one in december And frankly, this unprecedented hedge enabled Bahamas to take advantage of low oil prices in the international markets, to hedge oil prices on 7.2 million barrels, which is quite significant for a small country like the Bahamas, protect itself against abrupt oil price movements, ultimately offering consumers protection against unexpected price increases, energy increases, and protect the government's budget resources by allowing it to implement Better financial risk management over the next, you know, three years and a half, which is, you know, sort of the duration of the various call options, Asian call options that we executed. I think this is a very beautiful example of the kind of things that could start happening when you work close with governments and with debt management offices to get them to to use tools to manage market risks
1: it's really interesting as as sort of the Bahamas being the the importer um it did, has brazil um started thinking about using that in in any way as as a as a big natural resource heavy heavy country
0: you know what it's interesting brazil <laughs> you have countries for countries brazil is is you know it's a big producer but brazil in many ways it's so large that sometimes it's not focused on that type of, of you know Oil maybe for Brazil is not the key focus um, or concern, given the size of the market. But on the other hand, you have other countries exporters like Colombia, for instance, or Ecuador, where boy, in the case of Colombia, you get oil prices to come down, and that took the country. This is 2015, you know, and you know went down 30% of exports, and GDP contracted, and it was a mess. So. Countries, more countries like the Colombia, the Ecuador's, you know, the, the countries that are uh, not as big as Brazil are very focused on finding ways in which they could use this kind of tools. And in some cases, they have had to issue le- specific legislation because, as I said, sometimes the ministers of finance can be even impeached by, for using you know, I don't know, $40 million to pay a premium for an oil hedge and and not really being able to, you know, and maybe the hedge doesn't pay because it's insurance that they're buying. And that is very hard to sell at at a time when you have countries, you know, contracting COVID and all the rest. So um, countries like that are looking into this. Small countries too, Dominican Republic, you know, could be, you know, countries start... Learning about what the other ones are doing and how a multilateral can help them, and they start looking into this because for those countries, I would, I would venture to say they're a lot more vulnerable for either price increases or price reduction, depending on what side of the spectrum they are, whether exporters or importers.
1: It's very interesting thing about the different tools. You know, Wall Street gets a bad rap for you know selling complex products like this to. Uh, you know, these governments and uh, where they really could help them manage risk. But it's sort of interesting dynamics with this insurance payoff. Like uh, you you don't want the insurance to pay off, but then you're paying this premium um, potentially for that for that coverage.
0: Uh, uh, Jeremy, you put you exactly put your finger where where the real issue is, because, in fact, Uh, Part of what, um, you know, talking with the many, many ministers of finance, they said, and they felt very strongly when the IDB started to offer this, because they said for us, for them, it was less political and reputational risks, because for a government, it's a lot easier for a minister of finance to say, hey, I did an oil hedge with the IDB that is perceived to be an honest broker, I'm part of that cooperative and I'm using the AAA, leveraging that AAA for the benefit of the country than saying, I'm going to do it with uh, yeah, whatever. JP tax, Morgan. JP Morgan, yeah. Exactly. So, um, yes, there is a market failure there. Yes, there are, there is a lot more that could be done because you're right. The more the countries use this risk tool management tools, the less vulnerable, at least their debt is, right? They can bulletproof uh, a country's finances by using this. And perhaps I'm going to move into another example, which is rate fixings, you know, in dollars, because of course, you know, a lot of the debt is in dollars. Well, um, try to convince a small country, and I'm, I, I don't want to use particular names to, just not to offend anyone, but there, are small countries that, the DMO office may be completely convinced that they need to fix rates, and yet, how do you sell that to, you know, the Congress or the government or the minister or the president? Right? And it makes ample sense to fix rates, um, especially- particularly
1: now if if the rates are at historical lows. Is, are, are are do a lot of these governments have? Are they issuing? Are are people taking advantage of the extreme lows in rates to issue as many bonds as they possibly can now?
0: Well. they They are, of course, you know, obviously given market conditions they have. Countries are issuing bonds. Um, Yes, spreads obviously widened, you know, because of COVID, because, you know, contraction of the economies, et cetera. But um, I can tell you that um, the fix, at least when it comes to, for instance, loans with the I D B, the level of rate fixings, which was something that countries were very, worried about using. Again, it's buying an insurance. Why should I pay a fixed rate right now when the interest rate, the LIBOR rate is at 0.20%, right? How do I explain that I'm going to pay, I don't know, 2% for the next 25 years in this IDB loan when I could be getting the same, you know, I could pay right now 80 in total with fees and all for the IDB. Well, How do you say that to a country that issues at 500 plus over U.S. treasuries, right? They're going to be saving a lot of money because I can tell you we fixed rates levels below 2 percent for 20, 25 years. And we did that in the last at least in 2019 and 20. I can tell you that we fixed rates in more than 20 billion dollars in loans for small countries in the region. Which made us quite happy to see that finally these tools were being used, right? Yeah, um, There's one way of protecting, yeah, again, public finances for a country.
1: We're talking with Claudia Franco, who has a lot of experience in in these bond markets, helping countries manage their debt issues. As you think about who's been investors, so you got you're representing the the countries um, as sort of helping them raise raise this capital. Is is it who are the are there who are the providers of that capital? Has that changed over time? Is it is it um, you know institutional investors around the world, or is how is the the IDB funded itself?
0: Well, the IDB. Okay, so there are two questions there that you're asking. The IDB is AAA, so the universe of investors for AAA is is a whole is, is AAA investors. Okay, so everywhere
1: around invest, the world,
0: everywhere around the world, you know, and of course because it's AAA, you have central banks, you know, that are investing in IDB bonds. You have, yeah, you have very a particular set of investors that are looking to get that AAA, right? So that is one set of investors. And they're looking at the IDB more as a AAA and perhaps a vehicle of putting a, a foot into what the IDB does, but without taking any currency risk or anything. It's just a AAA that you're buying and, and it, it goes for a very particular purpose. Another set of investors is, of course, the, those investors who are experts in emerging markets. You know, emerging market investors who are used to investing and going through the volatility of the markets, through the many ups and downs. Uh, who know this country almost better than, <laughs> you know, than the, almost the locals have followed this country very closely. And are experts in emerging markets, and especially non-investment grade world, which is a whole different world than what you would think, you know, for the whole investment grade uh, universe. So, yes, you you have the, the dollar investors. I think it's, you know, you, you have the insurance companies, you know, you have the uh, pension funds with, of course, the groups that are with particular emphasis. And, you know, in emerging markets, you have um, the hedge funds that are interested in, you know, in this kind of assets and are willing to take the volatility. And um, I can tell you that central banks in the region, you know, in Latin America, they're not interested in buying, you know, that kind of bonds. They are are investing reserves. So what you have is the participation of some of the local investors, sophisticated pension funds, maybe insurance companies that have the ability to invest in those bonds issued in the international markets that could potentially uh, take a slice of of those bonds issued abroad there are you know there are limits as to how much they can buy in dollars too for many of these pension funds but i think there is an active group of pension funds that have become very sophisticated from the region that are also sophisticated in the international markets and buying these dollar bonds
1: got about closing thought about a minute left um if you think about what you would want for people who have looked at the region or any misperceptions for people, any any closing thoughts of you think of perceptions for Latin American investing and and how you would want people to look at it?
0: Oh, wow. That that is an interesting question. I think that I I, I would invite the listeners to really look at the region. And and really, if you're sort of um, worried about the whole concept of Latin America and where to start, you need to start looking at particular countries, maybe, you know, slicing and dicing a little bit, because you have a whole combination of, of, of countries that um, are growing, are poised to grow after COVID. Um, and, um, you know, there are exporters of oil in some cases, uh, which are poised to benefit from the rebound of the, you know, developed world markets. Um and I would I would invite them to to go and explore, you know, and, and, and just go with an open mind because I think there are opportunities there to 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 invest and to find interesting opportunities to get to know more of these countries. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Claudia, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being part of our show today. I'd like to thank our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Chris Tukes. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody.